This is the Conduit Church Teaching Podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's our mission to be a conduit of Jesus to the community in front of us and the world around us, starting with the teaching of His Word. Enjoy the message. We're in the book of Revelation. We're going to be in chapter 7 today, and it's been our practice for the last several weeks to read the entirety of the text prior to actually studying through it. So James is going to come now. Uh, Open your Bibles if you have them to chapter 7, or the words will be on the screen, and James is going to read that for us. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. And from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Wow. That's God's word. Chapter 7 presents two scenes in heaven. It's depicting a time that is to come. It has not yet happened. It is coming And it gives us a little bit of a glimpse of what it will be like for every one of you that may be going to heaven. To be clear, though, not everyone will go to heaven. So this is a message that is going to 
lovingly, but urgently appeal to anyone that is unaware of your eternal destiny and the location of where that will be, that you would be overwhelmingly convinced and wooed to accept the invitation to receive what is a gift that will secure your place in heaven forever. There's also an invitation for every one of you who we call brothers and sisters in the family of Christ, Christians. And how you are right now viewing and hoping for and eagerly awaiting what you anticipate to be true about heaven. For me, as I studied this text this week, I have been greatly challenged and convicted. My assessment of heaven has been lacking. And I'm going to share why in a moment. I want to start with this question. Don't answer out loud. Just keep it to yourself. If you could be guaranteed a heaven without Jesus, would you take it? I think most of us, when you first read that, there's almost a religious instinct, depending on how you've grown up. It's like, well, that's, the answer is no, right? Who would, who would say yes to that? <laughs> Jesus and heaven go together, right? Is that fair? You can nod or say yes to that. So the, the perceived answer is no. Let's press a little deeper. If you could somehow become transparent in this moment, at least within just the safety and privacy of your own heart and thoughts, consider these, these statements. If you could be guaranteed to be reunited forever with your loved one that has died, a spouse, a child, someone very special to you, they're gone. If you could be guaranteed to be reunited with them forever. Guaranteed unlimited, free, luxury housing, a mansion with no maintenance or utility bills ever. Perfect health without so much as a bimillennial physical. No pills, no supplements, no oils, no diffusers. No aches, no pain, none. If you could be guaranteed the impossibility of any scenario where you could ever lack for any physical need, not food, not drink, not anything, abundant supply for all your needs and much more. And consider this, if you could begin to guarantee the impossibility of ever being hurt, wounded, offended, or wronged by any living being or thing. To say it differently, you would never, ever be sad. You would never be discouraged. You would never struggle another moment with depression, anxiety. You would never shed a single tear. If you could have all of those things free to you and forever with this one condition. It all comes without Jesus. 
Would you take it? Think about this thought. In the same way that we are inclined or I would say even tempted to enjoy and elevate God's good things here right now over and above God himself, it is quite possible to attach our hope and our eagerness of heaven to the personal benefits of heaven. You could call them the fringe benefits. Over and above the presence of the benefactor of heaven itself. If you're taking notes or you just want to posit this main point in your head as we work through some of the text this morning, here's the big idea, here's the main point, and I trust that you will see not just with my words, but from God's word, that this truly is what is most important concerning those who will be in heaven. The glory of heaven is the presence of Jesus, which that being true does result in unending provision and protection. Let me say it again. The glory of heaven and what you will know it to become is the presence of Jesus. While it is true there are benefits that come by way of provision and protection. With that in mind, I want to challenge you. I want to give a proposition. Preaching is unique from teaching. Where teaching just takes information and it passes information from one brain to the next, preaching takes truth, specifically the living word of God, and it appeals to the volitional part of every one of yours, mind, soul, and emotion to the extent and conclusion that you come into compliance with the living truth of God's word. It's something very powerful and special. It's distinct from just teaching. So my heart, my mind, my will, my volition is to try to compel my own heart and mind as well as yours to come into compliance with what God has graciously revealed to us in his word. Here's the challenge specifically to experience, for you and for me, to experience heaven later, you must assess your relationship with this Jesus now. It is very possible that someone could be here this morning that will miss heaven because you have delayed interest in or relationship with Jesus. On the other hand, it's very possible that some of us who know Jesus, we call him our savior, our, our king, our friend, that while we anticipate his coming again to take us to heaven, Jesus himself is overshadowed with all the cool stuff that we're going to enjoy in heaven. And I would say if that's you, like I confess, I think it has been me. I'll be honest with you. There are times when I think about Jesus coming again that I kind of get bummed out. It's almost like Jesus coming might be an interruption to the things I'm actually enjoying right now. Is it possible that we have actually taken our imagination of heaven and we have marginalized and minimized it so much so 
that we actually become way too attached to the things that are here right now. As it relates to this text, Revelation chapter 7, the key to this challenge, if you accept it this morning, to assess your relationship with Jesus is really tied, interestingly, to the last three words that were mentioned last week in chapter 6. Three words that form this question in relationship to the horrible judgment that we read about. Here is this God of love that we talk about all the time and we hear preached about. And yet chapter 6 says that for all of time, God has been storing up his wrath. And in vengeance is going to no longer at some point be patient. And his wrath is going to be poured out in the way of judgments that chapter 6 mentioned upon the inhabitants of this earth. And everyone who has mocked God who has scorned God and ultimately rejected him and said, there is no God. God's wrath will obliterate those who have rejected him. It's really, it's a hard thing to wrap your head around. The question to that kind of judgment that's presented in chapter six is this question at the end of chapter six, who can stand? Now, it would seem, and I think it would be generally correct that the answer to that question would be who? No one. In fact, the text goes on to say that all of those who are unbelievers have not received the gift of Jesus or himself personally who are living on the earth at this time when the judgments come, they will be annihilated. They will not stand. And yet, chapter 7 goes on to present a scene that's literal that will happen after these judgments where there are an innumerable amount of people standing before a throne worshiping. They are the redeemed of the Lord. By God's grace, I hope they are you and you and your kids and your friends, and your co-workers. But there's also another text further on in Revelation, chapter 20, which also includes people who are standing before another throne. It's not a throne of worship, it's a throne of judgment. And between these two places, every single living being that has ever breathed breath on this earth will be standing in one of those two places a throne of worship or a throne of judgment. The challenge is for you to assess and determine right now where you project yourself to be standing in that day. There's so much in Revelation chapter seven. There's no way in the time that we have to go through it all. In fact, I'm just gonna skip over completely verses one through eight. The ceiling of the, and it was funny, in each of the three services, the scriptures being read, there's just different reactions with people. So some of you are giggling and laughing because it's 12,000, 12,000, 12,000, 12,000. Some of you lost count. It's 144,000 total. Which, that's a lot of people, right? I don't know how many Nissan stadiums that is, but it's, it's a lot, okay? That text is talking about an amazing scene there, about the sealing of these 144,000 of the tribes of the sons of Israel, uh, the fulfillment of God's promises to his people. Amazing stuff in there. We just, we're gonna have to just kind of pass over it, perhaps come back a little bit next week and go back there. And then we start with verses nine all the way to 17, and there's just so much there too. I'm gonna briefly just 
kind of skip through, hopscotch through a couple of points as we look at, if we can pull up the slide of the text starting in verse 9, I want to make just a couple of highlights. In verse 9, it talks about this, this gathering of what John says is a multitude that could not be numbered. He literally is seeing this multitude and he has no idea how many people are there. It's just a lot of people. And here's the point I wanna make. I've heard all my life and you have too that this, this idea that broad is the way to destruction but narrow is the way to eternal life. Meaning, and I believe that's true, Jesus said it, there are more people who will not be in heaven than are in heaven, okay, from a, a percentage. However, I want you to take heart with this. This gathering is not depicting this concept that in heaven, there's not going to be a whole lot of people there. It's not some gathering at a Friday night bingo. This is an immense, overwhelming, stunning display of the people that Jesus has wooed to himself through his own death, burial, and resurrection. There are a lot of people who are going to be in heaven. And the makeup of these people are going to be people that look just like you and me, and some people who look like nothing like us. In fact, the entire solution to today's social unrest and these protests, aka riots, with, with this social and racial and ethnic tension and diversity and fighting and conflict, it all gets resolved here. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people. We're all going to come together, and our focus will not be on each other's differences. It will be on the one who has made us pure. Notice the cry of these people here. Verse 10, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's an amazing concept. Now, at first, it doesn't seem that big of a deal. Salvation, yeah, it's God who saves, but think about this. Do you realize that the eternity of your existence in heaven, you will be being saved. Salvation is not just a one and done, a one-time deal. Actually, when you are being saved in heaven, you are being kept and saved from all of the things that are thwarting and have come against the kingdom of heaven. And it will be lasting for an eternity. Your salvation will exist and perpetuate in longevity throughout all of eternity. And that salvation, the work of it, belongs to who? To God, which means this, heaven in a sense is not so much about you or me. It's not even really so much for us, you or me. It exists for the glory of God. And apparently everybody in this immense multitude gets that. And they start to sing in one chorus, salvation belongs not to myself. I didn't do anything to get here. It belongs to the one who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And it's interesting, in this host are all of the angels. We have an expression back in chapter 4. And five, where John sees this vision of the throne room, and it talks about myriads upon myriads and thousands upon thousands of angels that were there assembled with the four living creatures and the 24 elders. Incredible. 
But yet in this scene, it says that added to those myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands of angels are all of the rest of the angels. There were a bunch of angels who weren't there in chapter four and five. They're all here now, have no idea how many there are. And yet when they hear the redeemed singing salvation belongs to our God, their chorus of response is, amen. So be it. It is true. The angels exalt God. And why do they exalt him? Because God has done something amazing. In fact, if we skip ahead, let's go to the next slide, verses 13 and 14. Notice what it says at the end of 14. It says that these people are standing there clothed in robes. And there's a specific color, white. But this is almost a paradox because it says that their white robes have been washed and cleaned, which I'm good with that so far. Last night, I took my white shirt and I didn't think it was white enough, so we bleached it. We sat it in a bucket with bleach for five hours to get it as clean and white as I possibly could. I know, I don't know why. Maybe it worked, maybe it didn't. Bleach can turn something white. Blood, you ever got blood on a white shirt? It doesn't come out white, right? It doesn't make sense. Blood stains something white. Unless it's the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all our stains. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness or remission of sins. When Jesus shed his blood, it is that and that only that can cleanse us to where the result is we are perfectly clean. That's the salvation the redeemed are proclaiming. Amazing. But that's still not even the good part. The good part is back to our main point. So let's start now in the next text, reminding ourselves the glory of heaven is not necessarily this, this innumerable multitude praising and worshiping. There's, there's something else. The glory of heaven is the actual presence of Jesus. So let's go to the text. There are some fascinating things here in verses 15, 16, and then 17. If you have a Bible and you're looking at it, notice that there may be a unique way in which the words and the sentences are printed in your Bible when it comes to verse 15, 16, and 17. Instead of just straight sentences all connected together, they're kind of grouped in what are phrases. Here's a subtle, distinct hint. John actually is quoting now, actually he's not quoting, the elder that he has asked this question to John. The elder responds, and in verse here, 15, he begins to sing a hymn. It moves from prose to poetry. And there are five distinct phrases that are mentioned with regard to what is going to be happening in heaven for all of eternity. Another thing, though, that's fascinating, which is why I want to be able to show you how I can prove, I think, from the Bible, why the presence of Jesus is the most important thing about heaven. And that is that in verses 15 and 16, there is a literary tool or device that is being used here to communicate to us the most important part. It's called a chiastic structure or a chiasm. And it simply looks like a, a V or a funnel. 
Verse 15 has three phrases in it. We could say A, B, and C. Starting here, A, B, and at the top is the third phrase, C. Coming down the other side would be verse 16, A and B. But notice, A and B of both verses are all pointing to and emphasizing the very middle phrase, which is which phrase? Notice the end of verse 15. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his, what's the next word? Presence. Now that's really cool. Except, do you know in the original text, that word presence isn't in there? It's not there. In fact, these words shelter them with his presence. Five words in English. Do you know in the Greek text, there's only one word, just one. You know what that one word is? It's the word that both for Greek and Hebrew, it's the root and it's shakan. That doesn't mean much. The Jews, the Hebrews would say it this way, shechana. To clean it up in English so we can all understand, maybe it sounds like this, shekina. Does that ring a bell? Old Testament, the Jews escape with God's divine power through the 10 plagues out of Egypt and they're going through the wilderness and God says, I will not leave you, I will be with you. He instructs them to build a, a tent, a tabernacle. And in that tabernacle is a place called the Holy of Holies. And the Bible says there literally was a cloud, a covering that within this tent-like structure in the Holy of Holies, the presence of God was with his people. The word shechanah, shekinah, glory, simply means tent. Here's what this is literally saying. And he who sits on the throne will tent with them. First time I ever tented with my dad was in Colorado. We were about three miles out on our first hike, backpack trip. My brother was with me, just the three of us, and we're hiking out to this spot. We're going to camp out overnight in the forest. And the whole way out, my dad is telling us stories about bears. It got our attention. We get to the campsite, we're unloading, we're unpacking, and my dad sends up his tents, and we've got each of our tents, and he says, hey boys, are you, are you excited about sleeping in your tent tonight? Uh-uh. Nope, not at all. You know where we slept? You know what happened? My dad tented with me and my brother. We slept in his tent. And you know it made all the difference? The tent itself, it's a piece of fabric. If a bear did come, we're toast. But the fact that I knew my dad was present with me. My dad tented with me. His presence provided a covering, a safety, a security. There was something that actually completely dispelled any fear of bears. Because my dad was there. My dad probably would have been killed by a bear, but I thought my dad could kill the bear. And so as long as my dad was tenting with me, I was at rest. What does your soul long for this morning? To be at rest. 
to be free from the hurts, the wounds, the scars, the violence, the wrongs, the anxiety, the discouragement, the sadness, the depression, the lack, the bills, the maintenance. It goes on and on and on in this life, doesn't it? And it would be erroneous for us to think that we can attach our hope that somehow God has promised in his word that all of our issues are going to be fixed in this life. God does not promise that, but he does promise us that when we join him in this place called heaven, he, for all of eternity, is going to tent with us. This great God whom my and I hope your salvation belongs to. And he is going to continue to be saving us throughout all eternity. Our main point, God's glory, or the glory of heaven is the presence of God. But it continues on. If you go back to the text, there are fringe benefits. It's not just a kumbaya sitting around with God all day. God does in his goodness and his compassion and his love, he provides amazing benefits in heaven. The next sentence actually is a fulfillment directly of Isaiah 49 verse 10. They, that's those who are in heaven, shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. This is simply a general description saying this, you will not lack for anything. We, we are delighting in being able to feed children in different parts of our world here at Conduit. There is coming a day when those children are introduced to Jesus through the blood of the lamb that was shed for them and they accept it. They have a promise that one day they will never go hungry again. Ever. They're never going to thirst. They're never going to have a need for anything. Why? Because when God tends with you, he takes care of it all. Now we come specifically to the identity of this one who sits on the throne and this lamb. Verse 17. How can these promises be made to us? How, how can we be sure that these promises will be fulfilled? Well, because it gives us the identity and the work of this person. It says, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Let's stop there. I've highlighted lamb and shepherd because there's a, a paradox here. It's, we call it a metaphoric paradox. There's mixed metaphors. It, it says that a lamb will be our shepherd. Darren talks about on the farm when you guys used to have sheep, right? I've gone to the rodeo and I watched the little kids ride the sheep with the little bike helmets on. You ever done that? Franklin Rodeo? It's kind of cool. Well, after they're done riding, the sheep, you know what the sheep does? It runs into the corner and it just kind of aimlessly wanders. And then when another sheep comes out and by then, it's like 30 minutes in, there's five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten sheep. They have no idea where they're going. Not one single sheep knows where to go and how to navigate, let alone lead any other sheep. How does a sheep become a shepherd? Unless the one who is the shepherd first became a sheep. The Bible says that it pleased Jesus to leave the splendor and glory of heaven and to humble himself and to come and become a man. 
to become a sheep. We are likened to sheep in the scripture. All of us are like sheep. We've all gone astray. We've all gone our own way. And yet there was one that came and he became the perfect candidate because even though he was tested like we are, he knows our trials and our struggles, our hurts and our pains, our wounds, and yet he never has erred once. And therefore, he satisfied the demand of a holy God that there would need to be a sacrifice of a pure, unblemished lamb. Who became that lamb? Jesus. And now Jesus has been exalted above all other names, and he has taken the role, the Bible says, of a shepherd. This is an exact fulfillment of Psalm 23. What does a shepherd do? He will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Notice the imagery. He will guide them to springs of living water. Again, in the Greek text, the original language, it's interesting, it doesn't read quite like that. It actually reads, he will guide them to life. Singular, that's it, that's all it says. Zoes, life. Meaning this, when Jesus came and said, I have come to give you life and life more abundantly. He meant it. A life that is free from everything that ails us now. And it's going to be Jesus' great delight as a shepherd to lead you into life, singular, the composite whole of what life is intended to be for one created in the image of God. To be released from this Genesis 3 cursed world and to live in a place where all has been made right. Can you even imagine? It then goes on and it says in the Greek, Guide them to life and springs of water, multiple, plural. Can you imagine for all of eternity the imagery of going to a spring and being satiated with incredible deep satisfaction with every need and want that you would ever have because that is the abundance and fullness of life that Jesus promises to those who are his. The last point I'm going to make is an amazing one. I've highlighted the word wipe. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The word wipe, English, in the Greek text, is a strong, forceful verb. It literally means to destroy, to annihilate, to pulverize. Does that mean Jesus, every time you cry, the first tear that comes out of your eye and comes down your cheek, he's just going to bam! Be gone, tear. No. You know, it's not the tears that bother me so much as what causes my tears. I cried yesterday for 15, 20 minutes over something that in my life right now is troubling me. You know what Jesus says? That very circumstance that's troubling me and is aching in my soul and is wounding me, Jesus says he is going to take that circumstance, he's going to obliterate it, he's going to destroy, he's going to pulverize it. And whatever your struggle is, whatever the predator is, whatever, whatever the issue is that's causing you hurt and is leaving you in a place of despondency and depression and pain and loneliness. Jesus says, as the shepherd lamb, I am going to destroy it. Think back to the springs of living water. Real quick, the imagery, it's amazing. Middle East, Palestine area. 
Uh, Ten years ago, I'm at the headwaters of the River Jordan at Tel Dan, and off to the right is Mount Hebron. Amazing sight. It was in the early morning. The sun is peeking through a snow-capped mountain where the transfiguration of Jesus took place. Headwaters are here, a bubbling spring where all of the Jordan River comes down and dumps into the um, Sea of Galilee and then further on down to the Dead Sea. As I'm standing there at the headwaters, think about this. When there's a watering hole, a spring, what kind of animals come to the watering hole? Well, all of them. But on this side of heaven, that's a problem. Because not all animals like each other. Well, that is the problem, actually. Some animals do like each other, enough to eat them. So are both predators and prey at a watering hole. While I'm standing there at the headwaters of, the, uh, of Dan, of the Jordan, a hundred yards away at a trail between some just what was like oak brush, all of a sudden, right in front of us, like it was straight out of the Bible, four gray wolves came trotting down this pathway. I don't know if there will be wolves in heaven or not. I think there probably will be, but here's what will happen even with those wolves. The wolf will be taken out of the wolf. And the springs of living water, in order to give the abundant life that you have always desired and that Jesus promised, is guaranteeing that every time you come to another fountain of water, there will only be those who are safe there. Any predator, any prey, including Satan himself and all of his demons and all of his predatory onslaught upon you and your family, it will be obliterated. It will be bound and put away for all of eternity. You will be safe. Why? Because Jesus is tenting with you. And by the way, the you is not just plural. It's not like all of you, you. It's to be taken personally. It's you personally. The Jesus of heaven, the shepherd lamb will be tenting with you. Jesus is the main event of heaven. And everything else that's amazing about heaven just simply is a fringe benefit. But did that mess with your thinking today? Because if you think this through, Heaven is not about better bodies, better house, better friends, better stuff. The big deal of heaven is that you are going to be living and tenting with Jesus forever. I want to close by saying this. It comes back to our, our challenge, which is this, to experience heaven later. To ex- if, if this has enticed you at all, in order to experience that, you have to assess your relationship right now with Jesus. No one will be there who is not introduced first to him now. And not just introduced, but accepted, received. You can't pay for the penalty of your sin. That's, that's Revelation 6. You can't withstand that. But Jesus withstood the judgment that God had for him in our place. If you receive that, you have heaven as your hope. Assess that now. Will you be standing in actually in future time, this scene we have in Revelation 7? Will you be standing before the throne of worship? Do you see yourself there? Or could you see yourself in Revelation 20 standing before the throne of judgment? To all unbelievers here this morning, Isaiah says it this way, would you take your filthy rags of unrighteousness and all of your attempts to merit favor with the holy God and would you cleanse them through the blood of the lamb? Let your filthy garments be made white through Jesus' blood. 
Do it today. Do it now. And for those of us who are Christians, and whatever your thought is about Jesus coming again, the scripture says we're to be eagerly waiting, we're to be watching, we're to be praying. Is the thought of heaven an interruption to your plans right now? Is it a bummer? Is it a downer? Does it scare you? Does it threaten you that some of the things that you've really become attached to right now on this earth and in America and even with all the COVID that's going on, it seems as if most Americans, and and I want to be really careful when I say this, I'm not being critical because I've thought the same thing. It's like all we want is for life to return back to what? To normal. And could it be that our normal actually eclipses what God is wanting to put our focus and our hearts on for later? We're not promised prosperity eternally here in the now. In fact, the Bible tells us that the world is going to progress worse and worse and worse. The suffering and the persecution of Christians is a joy and a delight and actually a crown of life that can be achieved. But the hope and the eagerness as we wait is the day when we tent with Jesus forever. I'm gonna close with this and then I'm done. Very quick, about nine, 10 weeks ago, my family got COVID, I had COVID, Tammy got COVID, the kids had COVID. If the kids coughed or sneezed once, I didn't know it because they didn't get sick. Tammy and I were a different story. I was in bed 10 straight days. It was hard. I would not wish it upon any of you. We're, of course, all better now. My wife had it worse, though. It came to a place on Thursday afternoon, Thursday morning, rather, where she had a fever approaching 104. She was in respiratory distress. She could not breathe well, and she was almost unresponsive. I called my brother, who's a physician back in Colorado. He said, Dave, you need to take her to the hospital immediately. I drive my wife. She can't talk to me. She's just sitting there panting like a little dog. We go into the emergency or up to the emergency room. They wouldn't let me through the front door. A nurse comes out. I asked to speak to the director who I know there of the ER. So Richard comes out and I said, Richard, I said, I've already got it anyway. Can you not let me go with my wife up to the room? He said, David, I'm so sorry. This is one of the travesties about what's happening now. Families are being separated. People are dying alone. Families are mourning alone. It's horrible what's happening. But for me, the reality of that moment was I, I literally watched, I, I appealed, I begged, and then I even debated and I kind of fought with him. I, I, I hope I wasn't ugly, but I think I was. <laughs> I am going up there. I am not letting my wife go up there alone. And he said, David, if you take another step, there are officers over here, they will handcuff you and they will arrest you and they will take you away. He said, I wish I could do this. And I watched as my wife was literally wheeled off, kind of slumped over, panting like a little dog. And for the first time in my life, I thought, what if I never see my wife again? It was horrible. You know, in that moment when I was thinking that, I wasn't thinking, I wonder if she'll ever cook a meal for me again. That'd be a bummer. In fact, I didn't think about any of the fringe benefits that come with marriage. All I wanted at that point was not the benefits, I wanted her. I just wanted her presence again. I wanted to hold her. I wanted her with me. And praise God, several of you were involved and others. We got together and we prayed and two hours in, her fever broke and she started feeling better. Her OSAC came up and she was able to come home two hours later. I was able to go pick her up. And when I picked her up, I wasn't celebrating the fact, well, honey, we're going to have a good dinner tonight. I was celebrating the fact that she was with me. Now, how 
pale in comparison is that story with what our experience with Jesus is going to be like. I invite you, I implore you, I plead with you, Christian, to stir the flames of your heart to personal intimacy and relationship with Jesus. And if you don't know him, come to him now. The course goes like this, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Would you pray with me? Father, it would be my desire right now to fast forward and see myself in that throng, immense crowd of every tribe, tongue, nation, people. And with many of my brothers and sisters also projecting themselves into that moment, they're, they're going to be one of those. And at the close of this instruction and teaching and preaching, we join the redeemed, those in white robes, washed by the blood of the Lamb. And we say blessing and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and might be to you our God forever and ever. And all those who are redeemed would say, Amen.